tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. When the framers wrote the Constitution and envisioned the legislative branch of the United States, they always intended for the House of Representatives to be the more powerful of the two bodies in Congress. As the true people's house, it would be the body that was closer to the voters. And the house was intended to be the more consequential and the more influential of the two. All budgetary matters, uh, the power of the purse, they're all controlled by the House of Representatives. Any bills that seek to change taxation or levy new taxes can only be introduced in the House. And the highest ranking member of the House of Representatives, the Speaker, comes before the senior member of the Senate, in the presidential line of succession. Indeed, on paper, the House is the boss. Yet, even though members of the House get paid exactly the same amount as senators do, and even though all of the members of the House of Representatives represent the same number or more citizens than at least 14 of the senators, more Americans consider the Senate to be the more important and the more powerful body. Though the framers may not have intended this, in the 21st century, due in large part to increasing party polarization and the influx of more extreme ideologues into the House of Representatives, and really more than a few media star leaders and power brokers in the North Wing of the Capitol building, it's actually the U.S. Senate where Americans look to determine what is possible in Washington. And in the year 2021, it's even harder to predict which way those winds are going to blow in the Senate. Because only four times in American history has the Senate been split 50-50 between the two parties. And this time, now, in 2021, actually marks the very first time in U.S. history when Democrats have held control of a split Senate. But when things are this close, it's pretty foolish to believe that the Democrats can actually just pass any legislation they want because they have control. In fact, the true power in the U.S. Senate isn't really even held in the hands of Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. Every tea leaf that's worth reading seems to lie in the offices of an incredibly small group of moderate senators, folks like Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia or Kirsten Sinema or Arizona, or on the Republican side, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. But even hypothetically, if that gang of four were to stick together, it wouldn't guarantee much could get accomplished because the rules on lengths of required debate and arcane procedural moves and the omnipresent filibuster. Because of that, the U.S. Senate isn't just a mule that refuses to budge. It's a boulder that some argue isn't supposed to be easy to move. I'm Clay Aiken. And few people get to witness the ins and outs of Senate rules and procedures and politicking as closely as Adam Gentleson has. Adam spent over a decade working for some of the biggest power players in the Senate, like John Kerry and former Majority Leader Harry Reid. And in his new book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, Gentleson takes readers through a deep-dive history of the world's greatest deliberative body, and describes why he believes it has become one of the greatest threats to our democracy. 
I'll ask him why he thinks Congress currently has a 25% approval rating. What reforms should be undertaken to make the Senate work well again? Which of those is possible and which is not? And how the heck are we going to get along? I was getting all my stuff all set together. I don't know. You might not like me after this. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, (laughs) I I, got to say, though, I, you know, you're obviously your original, you know, rise to stardom, but also now more recently, I'm a big fan of your Phineas and Ferb uh, contribution. (laughs) <laughs> do you know what's crazy so many people bring that really? up to me. it's all you must be you must be in your upper mid yeah, yeah well i I turned 40 this year so you're generous okay i was gonna say mid because because folks who are around my my younger brother's age all know about the phineas and Ferb. <laughs> that's so funny the most random thing in the world our son I, is I just a, that's I mean, i've seen hilarious. like every episode like three times so you know it's great but that's oh, what okay, with Shaka Khan. Right. that's that's pretty pretty rad the the yeah. legend herself yeah. I hope I hope she felt the same way about me, but I highly doubt she did. <laughs> so people are are pumped about this episode. Great. Producers are very pumped about it because it is. I mean, it's it's timely. I mean, it's hella timely this week, right? With what's going on this weekend and the procedural moves for the for the uh, COVID relief bill, and then once they once the Senate finally gets whatever comes out of that through, we're going to be moving into legislative areas where reconciliation ain't going to cut it, (laughs) you know, and, and there's going to have to try to, there's going to have to be some sort of decision about how the Biden administration can move forward with such a closely divided, not just the Senate, but house too. I mean, so closely divided. And, and some of the producers of this particular podcast are, just died in the wool, so thrilled about everything you've written in your book, mm-hmm. and you've got me as the skeptic. And right. I'm a big, I'm a big Democrat. Yeah. Um. But I am here, here today for you to change Great. my mind. But let's see how it'll Excellent. work. So, <laughs> I mean, first of all, just, just your your experience in the Senate. You worked with one of. And for one of the masters of Senate procedure, I mean, it, up at the very top of the of the heap when it comes to knowing how to w- pull the levers of that institution, mm-hmm. there are two people in my lifetime probably, and that's Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell. And you worked with Harry Reid very closely. Um, how how much of your opinions? And how many of your opinions and how much of your uh, thought process on how the Senate needs to work, should work, used to work, could work, comes from from watching him? Well, you know, everything I, I know about how the Senate works um, came from, you know, working with him. And, you know, one of the reasons that I was able to learn so much uh, through working with him is that when you work for the leader, you are involved in every issue and you have to, you know, figure out how to plan every issue and its floor strategy. And you spend a lot of time sitting in the cloakroom, which I describe in the book as sort of the nerve center of uh, power in the Senate. And, um, you know, so you're not just working on the issues themselves, but you're also having to craft the way to get them 
to passage, you know, how a bill becomes a law, like basic school rock, uh, school of rock, um, you know, civic stuff. So, you know, everything I learned about the mechanics of the institution, I learned from him. Um, and certainly several of the major lessons uh, about politics in the Senate and politics in general, I've, I've taken away from him. And I frequently think about something that Senator Reid used to say, which is that, uh, you know, he was a boxer growing up. This is an analogy that's frequently used when people are talking about him. But, mm-hmm. you know, he's a guy who, who grew up in a um, basically the middle of nowhere in the desert in Nevada in a tiny town called Searchlight. He grew up in a home made of railroad ties, literally, with no running water. Um, and he was a boxer, an amateur boxer throughout his career. Um, and so people often describe him as, you know, pugilistic and a fighter. Um, but one of the things that he would always say is, I'd rather dance than fight. And he was someone who came up through the Senate as an institutionalist, um, as someone who really believed in the institution and what it could do uh, and what it had to offer the country in terms of being a thoughtful place to develop legislation. And over the course of his career, he came to see that the institution was changing and that politics around it were changing and that what was necessary were some you know, dramatic steps that had not been taken for a while um, but which were rooted in Senate tradition to try to reform the institution to get it back to what it used to be. Um, it's become an institution that is more preoccupied with preserving its own rules and preserving the status quo and has lost sight of its primary purpose, which is to craft thoughtful policy solutions to the challenges we face today. And, you know, what he came to understand was that, uh, when the Senate is incapable of producing those solutions, then the rules should be altered through a you know rational, deliberative process, as they've been altered many times before in the Senate's history. Um, because you know the purpose of the Senate is not to preserve its own rules; it's to pass thoughtful policy solutions. And so, watching his evolution on that sort of philosophical approach to the Senate, and then how he went and put it in practice, was something that influenced me very deeply. It's it's so interesting to hear. It's it's almost a contradiction in terms. I don't think you're contradicting yourself, but it is in terms when when you when you talk about how in order to change with the times, um, and how and and bring the Senate into the 21st century, as it were, um, you have to return it to the way it used to work. So why don't you, can you start there for us and kind of explain a little bit? Um, I mean, if, if I, I totally have forgotten, I, t- I did mention it in the um, introduction, but uh, Kill Switch uh, is your book. And it's, it's, it's not just about the filibuster, but it's about how the Senate today turned into this particular Senate that we know, um, and away from the deliberative body that it's been lauded to be for for a century, um, kill switch the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy. But you go through some of the history. So since you're talking a little bit about kind of bringing the Senate back to where it was supposed to be, can you give us an idea of where you feel it was supposed to be, where where folks believe the Senate was at its best. Yes. And, you know, this is something I struggled with in, in writing the book because obviously there were, you know, structural issues of American politics, not just with the Senate, but the framers, you know, and, and structural foundations of, of our system that, that, you know, were deeply racist, that were deeply sexist, um, that were deeply xenophobic. 
And I'm certainly not an originalist when it comes to these things. But, you know, this debate about the Senate often gets wrapped up in tradition. And what we're really talking about is not necessarily, you know, did the framers have all of the right ideas about, uh, you know, every um, type of person and every aspect of American life, but rather, you know, did the system that they created in the Senate, um, was it capable of dealing with the challenges that we face um, or is the system itself incapable of adapting and incapable of dealing with those challenges? And I believe that if we return the Senate to the way it used to be, it, it will be capable of continuing to deal with the challenges we face because the framers did create a fundamentally adaptable system, something that could change itself, that could alter, that could uh, take into account new information and new ways of thinking. And so, you know, for the Senate... The key to all of that is that it used to be a majority rule body. And, you know, not just for sort of a brief moment in time, but for the vast majority of its existence. Um, For the first 200 years, essentially, of its existence, it was a majority rule body. And issues came up before it. They were debated often at length. um, But fundamentally, they passed or failed based on whether they could secure a majority of the senators within the chamber. Um, the framers you know, created a system full of checks and balances, but the idea was that all of these different checks were enough to guarantee that legislation would not be rash and um, impulsive. So having to pass through the House, having to pass through the Senate, having to be signed by a president and having to hold up through the judiciary, that in and of itself is a, is a greater number of checks than most other democracies have. Um the Senate was never supposed to represent the people, though, was it? I mean, was the the intention was not for it to represent the American That's exactly people. Right. It was for it to represent the states. You're, you're absolutely right. Although one of the funny things about this is that James Madison is often pointed to as the sort of champion of minority rights. And he vehemently opposed the idea of giving every state an equal number of senators. He gave a long speech at the Constitutional Convention um, explaining how this was a source of grave injustice. Um and, you know, if he thought it was a source of injustice then when the biggest state was 10 times the size of the smallest state, he certainly would think it was a source of grave injustice now when the biggest state is 70 times bigger than the smallest state. Um, so there were there were built in anti-democratic elements about the Senate. That's certainly true. However, um, within that anti-democratic structure, the decision making process was still supposed to be majority rule. And so what we've done now with the evolution of the filibuster is we've layered a even more anti-democratic decision-making process on top of an already fundamentally anti-democratic institution. And that is what has led us to this unbearable levels of gridlock that we're facing in our government today. Um, the framers were trying to maintain a delicate balance, which is to say, you know, the Senate should leaven the House. You know, it should sort of provide a cooling saucer. It should, um, you know, give a chance for the minority to have its say if, you know, the majority sort of rammed through its its priorities in the House. But they were very clear that the minority should not be able to actually block the majority in the Senate um, after they had had a chance to have their say. And what we have today is a situation where the minority can, can stop anything that it wants to, um, and that is this extra layer of anti-democraticness on top of an already anti-democratic chamber that tilts us over away from the delicate balance the framers were trying to strike into a much more precarious balance for our democracy where a minority, a numerical minority, 
you know, and as it as it happens in practice, uh, a minority that tends to represent predominantly white conservatives um, can wield a veto power over anything that the majority wants to do. And it also just so happens that the overall political project of that minority is to show that government is broken and that government is incapable of dealing with the challenges we face. So, so, so let me, I, I just want to, I want to back up because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of, and this is what everybody gets in trouble for doing is we, we don't want our Supreme court justices trying to assume what the framers intended, but yet we try to do the same thing ourselves sometimes. But I'm, I'm trying to think if I wanted to create a government that was truly based only on minority rule, and you said something a second ago about the House, um, uh, the, the Senate, they wanted the Senate to be able to slow down something and let it, let it right. simmer, um, but not block what the majority in the House had wanted to do. If I wanted to create a government where the majority always ruled, why would I do two houses of Congress? We have seen so many times, and the, and the framers saw in their lifetimes, so many times where the Senate had a majority of a different party than the House mm-hmm. did. So, so we are, the, the system itself is set up in such a way that the House could be controlled by one party and the Senate controlled by another, and gridlock will come from that alone. What, if, if they really wanted majority to rule, why set up a system where, where clearly one party can control one house, one can control the other, and one, a, hell, a third one could control the presidency if, if, if we had more right. parties in this country. They, they built a system that almost protected from any one party having total control as they do currently in the UK right now. I mean, in the parliamentary system. Wasn't there some degree of awareness of that when they made this, that they knew that things might not move so quickly, things might get held up by partisanship in some way? Yes. They, they wanted there to be a sort of, you know, a system of majority rule with multiple checks. They did not want, you know, they were thinking of, when, when they sort of decried direct democracy, they were thinking of um, Athens and the, and the ancient Greeks, where you had people voting directly on laws, like what would be a ballot initiative today, right? And so they certainly didn't want, you know, the people to just say, you know, we want to lower our own taxes and we want to, you know, take the richest property away from them. Um, But what they did want was a system where every decision point within the system was majority rule, but there were multiple decision points and multiple checks within that system that would guarantee that this wasn't a rush to a rash decision. So it was a delicate balance, but they were very, very clear that majority rule was supposed to be the overriding principle that governed all of the major decision-making processes inside of that system. Let me just read a couple of quotes for you because I'm, I'm you know, we, mm-hmm. like you said, you know, we sit here and we sort of extrapolate from the framers. And I, in the book, I tried to like really root it in their exact words. And this is one that, that was sort of an open and shut case. So, you know, James Madison, who is cited as the, uh, you know, often the primary defender of minority rights, um, he cited majority rule as what he called, quote, the Republican principle. 
James Wilson, who was the leading legal theorist among the framers, said, the majority of the people were ever found ought in all questions to govern the minority. Benjamin Franklin said, quote, the minority, that if the minority overpowers the majority, that would be contrary to the common practices of assemblies in all countries and ages. Thomas Jefferson said that majority rule is, quote, founded in common law as well as common right and is the natural law of every assembly of men. Um, And John Locke, the philosopher who they were drawing many of these ideas from, said in his second treatise in government, quote, the act of the majority passes for the act of the whole and, of course, determines as having by law of nature and reason the power of the whole. So they were very, very rooted in this idea of majority rule. They they did want to launder it through a system where, you know, it wasn't just one majority rule decision. They wanted several decision points along the way. Um, But they, they... it's certainly it's certainly easy to have to want majority rule when you are in the majority. I mean, I imagine that that more than a few of those uh, probably did not want minorities, l- racial minorities in the 1700s, to ever have the power to overrule the majority. Um, and I mean, th- <laughs> there there there's there's ways to interpret what they're saying to to benefit the argument against. I mean, for majority rule, and then there are ways also, I mean, am I, am I wrong that there are also ways to interpret what they were saying as, as necessary to protect their own power, right? Yeah, and I mean, definitely the framers were, were preoccupied with protecting. I mean, one of the things they feared the most was literally that, that the rabble was going to rise up and take away their property. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were, you know, they, they were certainly not enlightened in the way we would think of that today. Um, obviously, you know, they... they declared uh, Black Americans to be three-fifths of a person. They excluded women and non-property men from voting, so they were deeply regressive. And second, yeah. So I ain't thrilled with direct quotes well, yeah, no, I, 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 considering three-fifths. The one thing they did do that was good was they left a system open that could adapt to, to new times. And this is, this is sort of where the point comes to a head for me, which is that they created a Senate that allowed the majority to decide where it wanted to take this new society and this new government. And if the majority decided it wanted to expand voting rights, that it wanted to expand the franchise, that it wanted to grant rights to women and black people and, and minorities and, and, and grant um, marriage equality, they created a system that would allow that to happen. And what we have now is a system where the minority, which tends to be not the underdog, but the overdog, because it's protecting the status quo, uses this system that is different from the ones the framers created that gives more well let's get to how it became yeah, different yeah. too because because somewhere along that process somewhere along the process of the senate changing and adapting and the majority in the senate choosing to adapt and make the rules it wanted to that 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 same body introduced something that the framers had not come up with on their own um Am I right here? The filibuster was not in the Constitution. It was not something that the founders necessarily d- designed themselves. When did that come into play? Yes, that's right. It was not part of the Constitution. Um, and, and the framers would not have wanted it to exist because they, and I, I, I know, <laughs> you know, but I, I think it's good to, to level set here, you know, just on the idea that they anticipated a lot of what was going to happen and the problems that were going to arise from the filibuster. Um, you know, what, what they had been, so, so when they wrote the constitution, they had been previously working with the articles of confederation, right? The first draft of American government. And that had a supermajority threshold. 
in Congress to pass most major pieces of legislation. And they saw that that created gridlock. And specifically what it allowed to happen is for a minority to throw a monkey wrench into the system and block anything the majority wanted to do. And so they did not want that to happen in the new form of government. That's why they made it majority rule. Um, So in the middle of the 19th century, um, the most powerful interest in the country um, and the most noxious interest in the country, the slave-holding class, um, realized that if the majority was left to its own devices, it was going to abolish slavery. They could see which way things were blowing in the country, you know, through a variety of means, economic means, land navigation rights, water navigation rights, you know, territorial disputes. Slavery was on its way out. Um, And so since the majority was marching towards abolition, the minority in this case, the slaveholders needed to empower themselves and come up with a stronger way to block what the majority wanted to do. And that's when they started to innovate mm-hmm. the filibuster. And the lead innovator here was a guy named John Calhoun, who was the senator from South Carolina, sort of the leader and the right. sort of granddaddy of the Confederacy. Um, he passed away in 1850, so he didn't, didn't see it come to fruition, but he led the nullification crisis in the 1830s and sort of, you know, was a leader of factionalism. And so how did he get that through? I mean, he, he, he was a part of the minority. Right. Um, and, but he somehow was able to get the filibuster put into the Senate well, rules. Well, no, was he, he, it was never off? put into Senate rules. And so this is part of what you hear today. You know, the idea okay. that Senate, you know, sort of decided to have this thing, but it never did. It just sort of backed into it. And what, what he did was he exploited a loophole, um, which was through an, an editing in the Senate rule books in 1806, um, they sort of opened up the possibility that you could have unlimited debate in the Senate. Prior to that, there had been clear rules that would allow you to stop debate, but no one ever thought at this time to try to do unlimited debate or have a filibuster. So no one ever used this rule and it got edited out. Um, so that was 1806. So about 25 years later, after no one had thought to use this loophole, Calhoun comes along and starts using it to pioneer what we would sort of think of as the talking filibuster, like the Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Washington, mm-hmm. you know, holding the floor. Right. Um, and and it's not a change in Senate rules, it's just a change in practice. Um, and this is radical at the time, and people are like, what are you doing? This is terrible. Um, and Henry Clay, the great compromiser, as soon as Calhoun started to do this, in one of the first instances in 1841, Henry Clay tries to stop him and, and restore this old rule, but Calhoun is able to outmaneuver him um, using a filibuster. So um, it, it wasn't what we would think of today. It does. It didn't raise the threshold to passage. It didn't raise it to a supermajority or 60 votes. It just delayed bills. Um, and actually, through the 19th century, almost never succeeded in stopping them altogether. But it was a big change in Senate practice, because prior to that, it had been sort of accepted that you would never try to block someone else from doing something through extended debate on any sort of regular basis. The, the minority... So where'd the 60 majority. rule come from? Where'd the... Where'd the 60 vote? That comes in, that comes in the Jim Crow era. Um, that comes in, it's a rule is introduced in 1917. Um, that, so, you know, basically between the John Calhoun era in the 1930s and 1917, the Senate goes into this massive period of decline, um, as it, you know, sort of ends the golden era and starts to go into a period of decline and obstruction. And, you know, it starts to get made fun of Mark Twain's novel, the Gilded Age is based on the Senate. Um, and, Sounds like we're repeating that. Now. Yeah, right, exactly. And <laughs> so there's one there's one big filibuster that, that prompts a massive public backlash in 1917, um, 
And in response, there's like literally senators being burned in effigy around the country. And so in response to this backlash, the Senate comes back into session and says, all right, we got to give ourselves a tool to end this filibuster. We're going to pass this new rule. It's called the cloture rule. Think of it as closure. Um, And this will allow a supermajority of senators to end a filibuster when it's gone on for too long. Okay, great. Good, Good for us. We've given ourselves a tool. This will prevent us from being embarrassed by the filibuster in the future. Um, what happens is um, civil rights bills during this period start to head towards passage. Um, there are federal anti-lynching laws, there are federal anti-poll tax laws, and there are anti-workplace discrimination laws that would have passed into law as early as the 1920s and through the 30s and 40s. Um, they passed the House by wide margins. They had majority support in the Senate, and they had presidents of both parties ready to sign them. So just like Calhoun in his day, the Southerner, the Southern white supremacists of this era, um, and I, and it was literally all of the Southern senators. So I'm not trying to, to you know, mm-hmm. cast dispersions on the South, but every every Southern senator who was in the Senate at the time was. We got our. We got lots of skeletons. <laughs> it's okay. We. I'm my, my mom's from Louisiana, so you know we live in North Carolina, <laughs> so I'm I'm I feel it. But you know that this is just the historical fact of. Well, you talk, you, you, you don't leave Jesse Hilms out of no, your book, I know that for sure. So he deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> we, got, we got lots of, we got lots Listen. of skeletons, but they, they obviously in, in this period don't want these anti-lynching things to happen. So they exactly. start. Exactly. So what the, they realize the is there's a rule on the books now that would allow them that if they put on a big show here and start talking about, oh, you can't invoke cloture, you can't end debate, that would be a violation of the minority's rights, um, that they can basically force civil rights bills to have a higher threshold for passage. Um, and so how ironic that these bills were to protect minority exactly, rights exactly. and they were yes. pretending it was minority rights. Well, Cal- you know, yes. Calhoun, um, the American historian, John Hofstadter called Calhoun, the marks of the master class, um, which I think is very fitting. It was, it was <laughs> you know, he, he claimed he was defending minority rights, but it was almost always in defense of the rich and powerful. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, so they start saying, you know, they, they put on a big filibuster and they force the majority to use this new rule um, to shut them down. And in effect, what that does is it means that civil rights bills all of a sudden require two thirds of the Senate to pass instead of a simple majority. And I just want to drive this point home because every other bill during this period, especially the post-war period, when we started building middle-class America passed or failed based on whether it could secure a majority. Only civil rights was forced to secure a supermajority of two-thirds of the entire Senate to pass. And that's why for 87 years, between the end of Reconstruction to 1964, no civil rights bills passed. Every other type of bill was allowed to pass the Senate with a majority. Only civil rights were forced to clear this higher threshold. And America was ready for civil rights. We have this idea that we weren't ready until 1964, and maybe the Senate provided some constructive role in helping the country get acclimated to the idea. And it's just not true. Um, Gallup, you know, first of all, they were, were passing by big majorities in the House. They had presidents willing to sign them. So that shows you, you know, politicians are in touch with their voters. They have a sense that these are popular. But Gallup started polling the issue in, in the 1930s. In 1937, they polled the question of federal anti-lynching laws, and they found them to have 72% support among the public, even a majority in the South. Um, they pulled federal anti-poll tax laws in the 1940s, and they pulled north of 60%. So the American public was ready for civil rights, and it was only because the Southerners figured out this way to apply a supermajority threshold that these bills were blocked. And so this is... So what happened? So how did LBJ get passed? Well, so this is an interesting story. So 
in, in, so yeah, in 1957, he got past it when he was in the Senate, he got past it by gutting the bill and making it completely toothless so much so that, that, uh, the, you know, white supremacist senators were willing to pass it. It was that bad. Um, but when he was president, he, he broke the filibuster, um, by, uh, it was a, it was a four month long filibuster, the longest in American history. Um, he focused national attention on this issue. You know, this was the, back in this time, senators were still forced to actually come to the floor and speak on the floor and hold the floor. So he was able to sort of force them to put in the effort to do this. You know, that drew national attention. You had Roger Mudd reporting from the Capitol steps every night. You know, the nation's attention was fixated on this filibuster. So it was massive public pressure, but it still took three months. And then in addition to that, you know, this was a time when both Republicans and Democrats supported civil rights. And this is something that's often forgotten. It, you know, he he had the cooperation of the Democratic Senate leader at the time, uh, um, Mike Mansfield, but he also had the full cooperation of the Republican Senate leader, Everett Dirksen. So just picture this. It's, it's hard to imagine in our polarized era, but literally LBJ was coordinating strategy from the White House with not just the Democratic Senate leader, but also the Republican leader. And they were working together essentially against the, you know, uh, minority of, of Republican, of, of Democratic um, Southerners led by Richard Russell, who ironically was LBJ's former mentor. So this was a real, you know, um, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker moment. Um, but, but you know, breaking that filibuster, just to put it in context of today, <laughs> required a public pressure effort that is virtually impossible to imagine today. It was, you know, three months of public focus on the filibuster with the evening news, Every night, you know, millions of Americans glued to their TV sets watching this and, and, and bipartisan cooperation with both both Senate leaders working together and, to break it. And that was a period when the filibuster required people to stand on the floor and do the Jimmy yes. Stewart filibuster speech. When did that change? So this started to change after it was, you know, the, the breaking of that filibuster was sort of a momentous watershed moment that led to that change. You know, immediately after that filibuster was broken, everybody thought, okay, well, that's it for the filibuster. You know, it's broken, it's gone, we're going to get rid of it. But an interesting thing started to happen, which was it it started to lose its direct association with segregation and, and racism. And, you know, other senators couldn't have helped but notice how effective it had been for uh, the Southerners for the white supremacists against civil rights. And so they, they thought to themselves, hey, this might be useful for me on my issue, and I will deploy this tool to leverage some concession on my pet issue. And so through the 70s and 80s, senators very slowly at first started to experiment with this issue. Um, and then another thing happened, which is that the Senate's workload grew massively. It became, you know, the, the size of the government was expanding to this period. There's more for the Senate to do. And so the leaders had a bigger challenge in trying to organize the daily business of the Senate. So they started basically sort of sending a a note to the caucus to say, hey, is anybody planning to filibuster anything? And if you are, let me know ahead of time. And if you are, maybe I won't bring that bill to the floor because I know it's going to face a filibuster. Or if you are, I know that it will probably affect, in effect, have to get the higher threshold for votes. Um, But what's really important to understand was this was still a rare occurrence. This was, we're talking about a handful of times per year through the Senate, the 70s and 80s, you know, only things that had extreme opposition against them faced this higher threshold. Everything still continued to pass on a majority vote basis. Just to underscore that point, you know, we think of Medicare, for instance, as a as something that's a lasting bipartisan accomplishment, but it it 
was not bipartisan because of the filibuster. Um, it, it was fought tooth and nail until it could secure a majority. Um, one of LBJ's top aides wrote to him saying, I'm thrilled. I We know this bill is going to pass because it can get more than 50 votes. Um, you know, that was what it needed to, to pass. Once it had 50 votes, a bunch more senators jumped on board and it passed with 70, which is sort of another point we should talk about, which is, I think, you know, a majority rule Senate actually when the hell is that ever going to happen? Yeah, well, that that may be true, but but at least when things are passing, you know, you have a chance that people say, "Hey, maybe I should get on board with this." But um, but anyway, but I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to get a look at the arc of the sure. filibuster from from the time for, from from it not existing at all um, at the beginning to it being invented or or kind of pulled out of the underbelly of old arcane Senate rules by John Calhoun to a point in its history where it did require people to actually go to the floor and speak and hold the floor as long as they could without sitting or drinking water or whatever the other weird rules we hear about are, to a point where we are today where it's just automatic unless you get 60. I'm trying to find the arc. So how did we get from the 70s and 80s where a few people decided to do it every once in a while in that Mr. Smith goes to Washington way to where we are today where it's just assumed that every... Every single bill will be filibustered unless there are sixty votes. It, it, it was like it was like a brand name drug becoming generic and hitting the market and having a demand. Uh-huh. You know, it was it used to be something that was only associated with segregation in the South, and nobody you know nobody else could touch it. But then it lost that association, and people thought, "Oh, I could use it on my thing," and they started using it on everything else. And so, but but to be clear, this was not a conscious decision by the Senate to decide to start using it, it was sort of, you know, the iteration over decades of many, many senators starting to normalize its use slowly, slowly, slowly. And then at the same time, leaders who were harried and had a lot going on starting to say, okay, just listen, if you're going to filibuster, I don't need the whole, you know, weeks of speaking, just let me know ahead of time and I'll just not bring it to the floor. But something came to a head sometime around the the beginning of the middle of Barack Obama's first term. Something came to a head and and how did we get from what you're talking about to the point where it just became so much that that Senator Harry Reid, leader Harry Reid, said straight up, filibusters aren't happening anymore and, and used the nuclear option on filibusters for judicial nominees. So what, what caused this to become worse? Well, basically, worse? think of the 70s, 80s, and 90s as the period when it became super user-friendly to use. That took a period of time to happen. It was a slow evolution. It was never a conscious decision. What ha- It just became user-friendly. It went from you know having to give weeks of speeches to like raising your hand and saying, I'm going to filibuster. And, you know, we backed into that. So what happened was that, you know, that process meant that by the time McConnell became leader, he realized that he didn't have to get people on the floor. He didn't have to go on the floor himself because the filibuster had become so streamlined. He could apply it to literally everything the Senate did. It wasn't a conscious Mm -hmm. decision to streamline it. It happened over three or four decades. But the end product was this very streamlined, easy to use filibuster that he could then easily apply to everything Obama did. And so what he did was he started to carry out an experiment that had never been done before, which was an experiment in mass obstruction. And he said, since this thing is so easy to use, I'm not going to apply it only to the biggest fights. I'm going to apply it to everything. And what I'm going to bet on is that Republicans, the party out of power, won't get blamed 
for the kind of gridlock that this mass application of the filibuster is going to produce. I'm going to bet that the party in power is going to get blamed by the American people for not getting things done because the American people don't want to hear excuses. Barack Obama comes in with these big promises of hope and change. If he doesn't produce, Republicans aren't going to get blamed. People are going to blame him. You know, and you see that today with Joe Biden, where you know he comes in with his big promises, and Republicans are making a similar bet, which is that if if Democrats don't deliver on those promises, the public won't blame Republicans because Republicans will say we're not in power. Don't blame us. Blame the people who made your promises. And I think that's right it, as a as a rational political calculation. I think that's right. American people don't want to hear excuses, and so you know it was a risky calculation. There were many people at the time, you know, pundits and and fellow Republicans who said to McConnell, "Don't do this. Obama's popular. You got to work with him." Um, and he defied all of those pundits and, and carried out this campaign of mass obstruction. And he ended up being right. Um, you know, the, the net effect of all of the gridlock that he poured into the system um, contributed to, you know, Democrats losing the House in 2010. Um, and, you know, which was a big crippling on Obama's presidency. And he continued to do it throughout Obama's second term. And, you know, people just are tired of gridlock. They want results. They don't want to hear you explain why the other party's to blame. Um, and so it was an so, experiment. So, I think, so was, solve it, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I wanted I wanted to le- get you to to take us through the history of this filibuster so that you could explain to us. I mean, I, I the the um the book the reviews for the book are ridiculously glowing. Ezra Klein um, from the New York Times. The New York Times actually said um, it was excellent and that it was an incredible case for reforming the filibuster. Uh, I'm probably not getting that quote right, but it's the... the I know for a fact that Ezra Klein loved it. Um, <laughs> but I'm my... But I want to know the difference between what so many people on cable news are calling for, so many people on Twitter are calling for, which is the abolishment of the filibuster. And I, I wonder why you, why, why people are saying that you're making a great case for reforming the filibuster. Because do you want to keep it and reform it, or do you think that it is a, it is that we need to return to a place where we never had it at all? <laughs> so. I, I try to be very open-minded when it comes to reform. I don't see my role as trying to be too prescriptive about this. I think this is something the Senate is going to work through itself and figure out. Um, I, I sort of think of, you know, basic principles um, that that I think are important to keep in mind as you talk through the reform conversation. Um, and I also think sort of the question of reform versus elimination is very much in the eye of the beholder in a lot of ways. Um, you know, what, what what is what is really important to me when we talk about reform is for to strike that balance that we used to have of having the Senate be a place where the minority can have its say and have a platform to make its case. Um, but try to reorient that back towards persuasion instead of obstruction so that you actually have to go to the floor and you have to explain why you're blocking something. And you can use that opportunity to try to convince people that you're right and maybe in the course of that debate, you know, your side will become the majority and you'll win. <laughs> well, that's just a pipe dream now, well, Adam. You know that. That's Ain't right. nobody changing their mind in the Senate right now. Well, so I, I got to ask you, because I would love to think it was true. true but it never happened, but, so we don't know. I mean, I think there's been like... 
Well, it happens every once in a while. Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, and Lisa Murkowski occasionally are willing to change right, their but, minds. But when it does happen, but, you, you actually see this like magic happen. It, it happens so rarely that we never capture it. But when you actually put senators on the floor together and they're forced to talk to each other without a script, you know, you actually see them start to actually realize they have points of, of commonality and connection across the part. I'm, I'm not predicting some big bipartisan flourishing here. I think the structural forces are too strong. Um, but I think we've got nothing to lose by putting them on the floor and making them talk again. But, uh, but when you say something like allowing the minority to have their say, are there not times where you feel like the minority should be able to block certain things? You think that that should never happen? Um, I think that you you, you can't really design a system, I think you have to sort of decide what your principle is. And I think that the minority should be able to, you know, go to the mat, take their case to the American people, um, and and try to persuade people that they're right. But I think at the end of the day, you have to have a system, and maybe there's gradations, maybe it's a lowering of the threshold slowly over time. Um, but fundamentally, you have to have a system where the, where the system is capable of processing the people's business and, and passing things eventually on a majority vote threshold. And that's, that is the system. Did you feel that exact, did you feel that exact same way in uh, July of 2017? Well, I started writing this book in uh, July of 2018 when Republicans were still in complete control of the government. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, well, yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it happened to okay. come out that the, <laughs> ironically the week that Democrats very well, well timed. Very well, well timed. Working, I so, so you're telling, so you're telling me that even when Republicans had control and and Democrats needed to rely on that filibuster, you still believed that. Yeah, I literally happen. started writing the book when McConnell was majority leader and Democrats were in the minority and Trump was in control. So, I, I, I believe this, you know, as a matter of principle and good government and good government. Um, well, I give you mad props well, for that. Well, I'll give you credit for that. It's not, it's not purely <laughs> altruistic. Let me explain why, which is that, you know, I, I think that there is a deep structural bias in the filibuster towards the conservative side of the aisle. And if you were to go back to a majority rule system, you you certainly can't guarantee that the other side is ne- never going to pass bad things. But you def- but you can guarantee that your side can start to pass good things again. And right now, we can't pass good things. We can't specifically... Um, you know, there's a little bit we can do through reconciliation. That's great, but we're going to quickly run out the, of the limits of that process. Specifically, we can't pass things like civil rights, voting rights, statehood, and these structural reforms that are going to help restore our system and take away conservatives' inherent bias in the system. None but, of the. But historically, historically, that's been true because conservatives and Republicans tend to want less right. government in general. So they haven't had the, the desire necessarily to create new laws, to create, you know, new rights for anybody, that's for sure. And Democrats have have typically, or at least in the, in the last 50 years, been the ones who wanted to be to progress because they're progressive and and create laws so republicans have been able to block it but we've seen more recently in the last 5 10 years that that republicans have have really started to learn how to use the federal government and the powers of the federal government to act to be more active um have we not i mean we've seen them more actively trying to require uh, 
voter ID, to ban mail-in voting, to restrict certain things in ways that, you know, maybe the 80s and the 90s, they didn't actively try to do anything. They just wanted to cut taxes and allow the federal government to, to wither and die. But, but more recently, Republicans have been more active in taking away rights. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of Republicans right now who would love nothing more than to pass um, a law requiring the budget to be balanced, which would which sounds pretty on a bumper sticker, but we know would would totally screw us in a situation like COVID. Um, they would they would pass laws that allowed for people to restrict same sex couples from adopting they would i mean republicans have started to be more active so does it not concern you that if republicans if the republican party of donald trump um or the republican party of josh hawley and and matt gates were to become the party in power again that they would not that this this current 2021 version of the republican party would not be more active than they have been in the past and and therefore Democrats would not wish to God they had not maintained the ability to slow them down. Well, here's the thing. They can just get rid of the filibuster themselves. And I I completely agree with you that the Republican Party is becoming radicalized. But part of that radicalization will be dismissing the filibuster as soon as it serves their interests. And they will do that without a shadow of a doubt. Why didn't Mitch McConnell do that last year? Because he was, when Trump was in power, it provided a useful service for him because it shielded him against the crazy things that Trump was calling on him to pass that he didn't want to pass. Um, and he got okay. Why didn't Harry Reid get rid of it completely? Because he faced a situation where, we, where he got rid of it for nominations and Obama's nominees were not going to But why not get rid of it for everything? I mean, they were blocking everything, right? Well, it was an interesting period of time. We, we, we didn't have the votes to get rid of it because in tw- this was 2013 and there was still a sense that, you know, the radicalization of the GOP hadn't fully settled in by this time. Um, Democrats thought there was still a chance, you know, Obama around this time said that the Tea Party was a fever that was going to break, um, you know, Merrick Garland. Oh, it's a fever and now it's a damn That's rash. That's right. But, but, you know, in April 2013, <laughs> um, there was still a sense that that it might, you know, the, the Republican Party might come back to normal. And so we got rid of it for nominations because nominations were being blocked um, and, and were simply not going to pass if we didn't get rid of it. Uh, then we lost the majority in 2014, and by the time M- Mitch McConnell blocked Merrick Garland and the sort of true radicalization of the GOP settled in, we were out of the majority and couldn't do anything about it. We didn't regain the majority until this past January. So I think, I, I listen, I completely agree with you on how radical the GOP is going to do, but I think you got to play that out and say this party uh, will, the minute it has something that it wants to pass, if the, when, when Republicans are back in power, if and when they are, the minute that they have something that can get 50 votes in the Senate, but is being filibustered by Democrats, they will get rid of the filibuster and pass it. And so I think that so, but so let me just finish this point, because I think that, you know, in order yeah. to leave the filibuster in place, Democrats are going to incur an enormous, immediate and very real cost, which is not passing things like civil rights, voting rights and many other priorities that will absolutely fail on the filibuster. And they're going to incur that very real and immediate cost in the hopes that this tool that they're going to preserve will still be there when they want to use it. And that whether it is or not relies entirely on Mitch McConnell and what he wants to do when he's back in power. And fundamentally, I don't think that's a very wise calculation. Okay, so that argument uh, I can I can buy. 
I get I get that. But what about those folks who say, okay, I mean, there's certainly a lot of people on the Republican side, a lot of people on the Republican side who say, who point to you and your former boss and say, well, you started it. You know, the 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 filibuster was in place and nobody was we we were fine. You could have filibustered these judges, but Harry Reid took away the filibuster for this thing. So we see your filibuster for judicial nominees, and we raise you the filibuster for uh, Supreme Court yeah. nominees. And then Democrats come in and say, "Well, we'll see your Republican, your su- Supreme Court nominee filibuster, and we'll raise you the legislative yeah. filibuster." So now oh. it's gone. Yeah. What are the Republicans? If if, if we do agree, because I think you're right, if we do agree that the next party will just do it anyway. If we do it now, what's the next what's the next norm that they're going to break and do we will we not have given them permission to break it by breaking this one ourselves? I mean, yeah. This, we're, this is my fear. It's it it just becomes a a spiral. Well, right? yes and no. I mean, you know, the, the blame game of who's to blame, you know, goes back to the 1980s and Robert Bork and and this is I, I love watching Republican I hate the yeah, plan I mean, game too. They, 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 it's it's hilarious to me to watch, you know, these these elite, privileged, you know, uh, often very wealthy people play the blame game um, and, and and claim victimhood on these things. Um, you know, Robert Bork is a funny example because a lot of this goes back to Bork uh, when they felt they were the aggrieved party. But it's really important to understand that Robert Bork wasn't filibustered. The guy couldn't even get a majority in the Senate. Other Republicans voted against him. He went down on forty eight votes because he couldn't clear a majority. But Republicans decided they were the great victims of that of that fight. You know. And and it turned into this this years long thing. The other thing is that in 2005, under George Bush, Mitch McConnell was the second ranking Republican leader who was leading the floor fight to go nuclear to pass Bush's judicial nominees. So as recently as 2005, he was on the exact opposite side of this argument, arguing to go nuclear. One of the nominees that McConnell wanted to go nuclear to pass was a guy named Brett Kavanaugh, who was a district court nominee at the time. They eventually got him through, and now he's on the Supreme Court. So you know. This blame game goes back and forth, and well, it, and and I don't like the blame game myself. So I is you know each party wanting to achieve its goals and just coming up with a rationale to blame the other side for it when they just want to achieve it. Well, I, again, that's why I don't like the blame game because for every everything that you say about Robert Bork, I'm sure a Democrat would say, "Well, we only did that because you did such and such to whoever." Three years prior, so I agree with you on that. But we're not going to stop. But we're not going to stop that, Adam, (laughs) because people are uh, humans. For whatever reason, we have a flaw where we are going to keep doing that. So either we have to. It seems as if though we need to resign ourselves to recognizing that for every tit there is a tat, and we're happy to tat now and expect for you to just make it worse next time or we ha- or something's got to change and it sounds to me it just feels to me as if though if you continue to do the same thing you've always done you'll continue to get the same results you always got i'm not suggest i don't have an answer to this by the way i i don't know what the answer is but but the purpose of this show in general is to try to figure out how we can get along and sometimes i worry how much we continue to throw fuel onto a fire and then complain about how hot it is. <laughs> you know? I, I um, is there an argument that canceling the filibuster, completely getting the fili- getting rid of the filibuster, and then and then pushing through what I think would be great policies <laughs> um, would end up doing exactly what Mitch McConnell 
predicted it would do uh, in the in the early in Obama's first term, only hurt the party in power. Um, it would only hurt Democrats right now, even though, yes, we would be able to raise the minimum wage. Yes, we'd be able to pass voting rights. Yes, we'd be able to do so many good things. But would we be able to maintain the ability to to protect those things if if we are the if we are now the party that just got rid of all the norms after four years of complaining that Donald Trump and the Republicans were uh, getting rid of norms? We got. Well, rid I think of it's our important to, to categorize these things accurately. I mean, getting rid of the filibuster would be done through a process that has been done many times before in the Senate history. So it's not, this isn't norm breaking. This is reforming the rules through the method that has been established by the institution to reform its rules. So I think, you know, it's a different category than, than sort of norm breaking. It's, it's a rational, thoughtful rule reform process. That is something the institution has done before. Um, but, but to your larger point, I, I think you have to look at this from a structural imbalance perspective and this system structurally advantages the system as it's practiced now structurally advantages conservatives and predominantly white and predominantly reactionary conservatives to a degree that is unhealthy for our democracy. And what we're trying to do is not just a tit for tat, but is trying to restore the system to a healthy balance. And I know it's our side saying that, and the other side would say we're being radical. But I think you have to sort of... And, and if we and if they were in power and we were, that's why I give I respect the fact that you were writing this when Democrats were not in power. So that you know, so it's a, it's a it's a true belief for you. But you, but most Democrats, other than you, believed the filibuster was important to keep <laughs> um, until we got power, and then all of a sudden they wanted to change. Well, the, the rules. sorting the sorting of the two parties into liberals and the Re- Democratic Party and conservatives into the Republican Party is a really recent phenomenon. We, we take it for granted now, but it's recent. And when you had liberals in the Republican Party and conservatives in the Democratic Party, you had much more of an opportunity for cross-party cooperation. And the filibuster wasn't weaponized by one party exclusively, or at least predominantly, more than the other. And so, you know, part of what we've seen with the McConnell era is it's a watershed moment in the Senate and in our politics generally, where the the sorting of the two parties, the fact that you've got only conservatives in the Republican Party and only liberals in the Democratic Party, means that you have a tool that structurally advantages one of those parties over the other. And that's a new feature of our politics. And, you know, what I'm saying is if you, if you put aside the, the tit for tat issue and just analyze this from a structural perspective, we have a system that has virtually made it impossible to pass pragmatic, bipartisan solutions that have enormous public support. And I think you've got to kind of work backwards from that conclusion. What, what, is, what is the most unhealthy thing for our democracy is for the government to prove incapable of meeting the fundamental challenges that we face today from climate change uh, to income inequality to immigration to, to all of these issues. And that's what we have today. And the number one reason for that is the Senate filibuster and specifically the fact that it allows a minority to block whatever it wants to. And so, you know, Republicans can frame this however they want, and I'm sure that they will decry it as a massive power grab. But basically what we're doing here is we're restoring the power of our government to function and restoring the power of the Senate to pass thoughtful policy solutions, which is its primary purpose anyway. It's not, doesn't exist to preserve its own rules. It exists to pass thoughtful solutions. And so, you know, we're going to spin it however they're going to want to spin it. But, but it is not a question of 
norm breaking because this is a you know rule making process that exists that has been used both by McReed and by McConnell, um, and you know institutions that have been around for a long time have to adjust and have to adapt their rules to meet the challenges of a new era, and that's essentially what the Senate needs to do. I I want to keep going on this for another. 45 minutes, but I'm probably going to get fired here in a second. Um, but you, you, you said the number one reason, and I want to go back to two weeks ago. We had uh, former Congressman David Jolly on um, two weeks ago talking about his uh, goals and what he would like to see changed in government and how Congress works. And to, he has plenty of concerns, as do most of us. But he, I think some of his his biggest issues, structural issues, were money in politics, the amount of money that that's required to run for office, to stay in office, to uh, move into leadership positions in the Senate or the House, um, and gerrymandering. Those were uh, two of his biggest. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, uh, listeners will probably find out that I'm wrong often and have a bad memory but i believe when i asked him what his what if he could only have a magic wand and choose to cho- fix one um he said he would get rid of gerrymandering do you think that the the most pressing thing is the filibuster is it the number one issue in our elected government that you believe needs to be addressed yeah it, it is to me because it's the gateway to everything else you know i think you wouldn't read a book on it if you didn't <laughs> believe it was the number true. one thing, right? Um, yeah, maybe, you know, one, one would hope. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a it's, a, it's a process issue. And I think for that reason, it's kind of nerdy and in the weeds. Um, but it is also the threshold for us to be able to pass solutions to all the other issues. So, you know, gerrymandering is, is a, a state's issue. It's, it's difficult to deal with. And Republicans, unfortunately, just kind of won uh, control of that process for the next 10 years, which is is depressing. But, you know, the, the issue of voting rights and expanding um, the franchise and combating voter suppression in other forms um, can only be done if we get rid of the filibuster. And, you know, resolving structural issues like the lack of representation of uh, black and brown people in America in the Senate, um, something that can be addressed through extending statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico if they if they want it. You know, things like that can only be addressed through the, if the filibuster has gotten away with. So, you know, the reason I, I focus on it so much is it's not just that I care about this one issue. It's that this has to be resolved if we're going to clear a pathway for any of these other issues to get resolved. You know, a few things are lucky enough that they can get past through reconciliation, but not that many things. And we're qu- quickly going to run out of the ones that are. And then we're going to be faced with this wasteland of not being able to get anything done unless we reform the filibuster. Um, and and you know, to your earlier okay. point, which, I, which I, I do take very seriously, and I think you, you know, you've approached this extremely thoughtfully, and I, and I take your points very, very much to heart. Um, but, but, you know, if we just try to hold the line and hope that our rights will stay where they are and, you know, that, that Republicans won't push that line farther back, you know, that's essentially what we're contemplating doing if we don't get rid of the filibuster because, you know, we're not going to pass that much in the next two years. Um, 
you know, and you've got the court, they're going to strike a lot well, of these rights down anyway. And the, the Republicans sort of have multiple ways to get at these goals that they have. Um, and we have passing legislation. That is our big weapon. That's how progressives enact change over time. Uh, and we've, we've essentially allowed Republicans to take that away from us. Um, and, and reforming you know, the filibuster or eliminating it will put that weapon back on the table and allow us, that tool back on the table and allow us. Can it pass? Like, yeah, well. Are there 50 votes? <laughs> I think there will be. 51. Um, you know, obviously you need to get a 50 and then the vice president breaks the tie. Um, and obviously you have at least two senators uh, who've been very vocal about their opposition and categorical in in, in it. Um, however, uh, these things... And by those you're talking about, Manchin and Cinema, Cinema? That's right. Um, but let's... And, and President Biden, by the that's, way. Well, and Biden's now. been less categorical. I mean, his most recent position was that it depends on how obstreperous Republicans become, um, which I think at the time was taken as a significant opening of the door to the possibility, and um, that's where he's been. So, um, and you've seen other folks like his close ally, Chris Coons of Delaware, have a similar position, which which went from absolutely not to let's see how it goes. Um, so there's a little bit of the opening of the door there. But listen, I, you know, I look at it from the perspective of 2009, we had, you know, we're 20 votes short and we got to reform by 2013. Here we're starting with a couple of votes short to me as a whip counter. That's a very good place to start. Um, it's definitely better than I expected. And you've already got, you know, you've got folks like David Brooks, David Frum, you know, sort of never Trump crowd coming around and saying, yeah, Democrats should probably do this. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a consensus forming around the issue. Um, and I think eventually what's going to happen is we're going to get through the reconciliation process and Manchin and Sinema are going to start to realize that they're not standing in the way of like far left policies that they oppose, like Medicare for all or, or the Green New Deal. They're fundamentally standing in the way of Democrats getting basically anything done, and especially on voting rights. Um, and that's going to- well. I want to go. I, I want to. I want to use this to move to some of our listener questions because yeah. we really had some really good ones for you this week, and I want to make sure we have time. and And you mentioned Manchin, and one of our questions comes from a. Uh, uh, oh gosh, I can't even read. Tim in Brooklyn, New York. Um, he said things might come down to Mansion or Murkowski, and we'll add Cinema and maybe Collins into that uh, here since you mentioned Cinema. Um, Tim says Tim asks things might come down to Mansion or Murkowski. Is that too much power in the hands of one or two senators? Um, is that a bad thing, or does it help compromise? Um, I mean. This is sort of the way the Senate was supposed to be. I mean, we're talking about what it, you know, what it was meant to be. I- ironically, you know, in its original um, inception, every senator was supposed to have enormous power. There were not actually Senate leaders in the original Senate. The position of the leader was not even invented until the 1920s. Um, contrast with the House, where the Speaker was, you know, written into the Constitution as al- and has always existed. So, in a way, you know restoring power to individual senators is in keeping with the Senate. Um, but I also don't think it's a, it's a problem in the larger sense, even if you don't find, you know, cons- that, you know, um, invocation of the framers, uh, intent to be persuasive, which I think a lot of people, um, especially on the progressive side don't, but, but I think that this is just sort of the way it is. I mean, I think, you know, on, on close narrow votes in a closely divided 50, 50 Senate, there's probably no getting away from the fact that, um, power is going to reside, more in the hands of folks who are in the middle and on the swing on many big votes. Um, that's just a, 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 you know, sort of fact of political life there. Um, and frankly, but that, that's also a reflection of like why majority rule doesn't contribute to rash policies is that 
even in a majority rule Senate, you have to have a policy that has the agreement of both Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders. So it's not going to be some far left policy. It's going to be something that is middle of the road just by the very nature of having to assemble um, that wide spectrum of people together, even though they all happen to be in the Democratic Party. Okay, Michael from Salt Lake City, Utah asks, who is worse, Calhoun, Russell, or McConnell? <laughs> I mean, look, I guess you got to go with Calhoun. I mean, you can basically go in descending order of declarations of support for white supremacy. <laughs> and if you're going to write it that way, you okay. got to go with Calhoun, who declared that slavery was a positive good on the Senate floor. Um, Richard Russell would come in second because he declared that the purpose of his life in public service was to maintain white supremacy. Those are his words, not mine. Um I mean, Richard Russell, though, John Calhoun at least had a an economic argument behind his. <laughs> Richard Russell's was just based on hate, Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, he he had, you know, he dressed it up in a lot of different ways, too. He was just a dick. Um, Mitch McConnell, I mean, listen, I hate to let him off easy, but, but you know, he has never said anything of that of that nature. So um, if you're going to rank him, I think he, you know, could be Calhoun, Russell, McConnell. Monica from Las Vegas asks... Is there anything at all, one is, I'm reading this incorrectly, is there anything good at all about the filibuster? I think that used in moderation and and used to sort of force people out into the open and explain themselves, it can be a productive tool. Um, I think there's value in people raising minority viewpoints. I think there's value in people having their say on the floor. Um, you certainly don't want the Senate to become the House where the minority gets no opportunity to debate. You know, in the House, you're lucky if you get an hour as an entire caucus to debate on a bill. Um, so I think there, there can be some value in that. And I think it's important to preserve that. Um, but I think what's, what's you know, what has fundamentally changed about the filibuster from the old days to today is this ability where it empowers the minority to stop everything in its path. And I don't think there's anything good about that. And that has to end. Um, if you're listening, the, the filibuster. Uh, to listeners who are listening, sorry, the the filibuster is is probably the most controversial and and most talked about of the of the government institution issues. Uh, I was talking to, to to David Jolly two weeks ago, and we discussed the money the money in politics and gerrymandering. And one of the problems uh, for David Jolly and those who are against. Uh, camp, the amount of money in, fi- in campaign financing and the amount of gerrymandering in the country often complain about, you know, how unsexy those two issues are. They are two issues that are very hard to get people to vote on. They're very hard to get people worked up on. The filibuster is almost the opposite of that. It is probably the issue that so many people have an opinion on and people are either adamantly against it or adamantly for it. Um, they don't want to get rid of the filibuster. They do want to get rid of the filibuster. It usually, unless you're Adam Gentleson, it usually um, <laughs> has a lot to do with whether your party's in power at the time or not. But if you have any interest whatsoever in this most powerful of procedural political roadblocks. I really do recommend um, that you grab this book, Kill Switch. It's called Kill Switch, um, which is sort of a perfect name because, A, I'm assuming I'm assuming you chose it because the filibuster can kill legislation, but at the same time, one of the best ways to, in your opinion, to improve the Senate would be to flip the kill switch on the filibuster, right? right? right. Um, it's called Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate 
and the crippling of American democracy. Um, it is, it's not just a history lesson, but there's a whole bunch of, um, there's a whole bunch of backroom stories. You know, you spent, Adam spent a lot of time in Senate, in the Capitol, um, kind of getting really interesting stories. And there's some, there's some really fascinating, lively moments in it as well. If you have any interest whatsoever in this or in politics in general, or in how in the hell we're going to get anything done in Congress over the next two years, three years, or ever, um, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, Adam Gentleson, um, will have links to it or, or information on it in our show notes. Um, Adam, I have to ask you the same thing we ask everybody. Um, how the heck are we going to get along? I think that we need a government that works. And I think that will take a lot of the poison out of our system. I think right now our government is pushing into deep realms of dysfunctionality. And I think it causes enormous poison and distrust in our system. And I think having a basic level of functionality back in our government will help people come back. And, you know, maybe Democrats and Republicans can go back to debating how big, you know, tax cuts should be and how big the size of the government should be um, if we're passing things again. So that's that's my hope. You know, let's restore some functionality and maybe we can start getting along again. From your mouth to God's ear, Adam Gentleson, thank you so much for being with us. We'll be back next week. Our guest is Heather McGee, the author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather McGee will be with us next week. You can send your questions for her to us at Politicon on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email them to podcasts at politicon.com. But between now and then, grab the book, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy by Adam Gentleson. Adam, thank you Thank again. you so much. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.